Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, welcome, church. Good morning. Glad you're here today. If you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, When you came in, you may have found a guest card like this somewhere around where you were seated. If you want some information about who we are as a church, uh, we'd love to send that to you. If you fill one of these out, you can drop it in the kiosk at the back of the room on your way out today. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, Also, on the other side of that card is a place for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. And so uh, if you fill out that card for information or for prayer, drop it in that box and we'd love to connect with you. Uh, If you got a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Colossians, where we're at today. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1 is what we're going to read together this morning as we continue to journey through the book of Colossians, considering the sufficiency of Christ in everyday life. And so this morning, we find ourselves still in this section of Scripture where Paul is addressing members of the household, and now he turns his attention to those who are masters and those who are servants in the home. And so let's read the text together this morning in uh, Colossians chapter chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes these words, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Back in 1937, a long time ago, uh, Disney Studios released what has been heralded and hailed as perhaps the greatest animated movie of all time. You want to take a guess? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, way back in the day. So those of you who are like my age in your 40s, you're like, wasn't that made when I was a kid? No, it was made a long time before you were even thought of uh, in your parents' minds. Um, but we have so much exposure to this movie that most, if not all of us, could, could tell you the story, could tell you the plot line, all the characters and what happens in it. We know about the wicked queen and the poisoned apple. We know uh, about the ragtag group of little dwarves and the peasant Snow White. We know about this gallant prince who comes along and with a kiss awakens her from a sleep like death. We know the story of the movie, but there's a song within that movie that is sung by Snow White. Actually, it's sung by the voice actress. Her name was Adriana Casaletti, and it was written by Frank Churchill and Larry Morey for that particular movie. Uh, And it's being sung in a scene in the movie whenever they are doing some very mundane chores throughout the home uh, as they sweep and they mop and they dust and they put away things, cleaning the home. And that song is entitled, Whistle While You Work. And I want to read the lyrics to you this morning in case you have forgotten them. Just whistle while you work and cheerfully together we can tidy up the place. So hum a merry tune. It won't take long when there's a song to help you set the pace. 
And as you sweep the room, imagine that the broom is someone that you love. And soon you'll find you're dancing to the tune. When hearts are high, the time will fly. So whistle while you work. Now this song sounds a little bit silly, particularly whenever it's paired with what's happening in that scene in the animated film. When you see the activity of the dwarves in Snow White while it's being sung, right? Dancing with brooms throughout the home. But the premise of the song is this, is that if in the midst of the most mundane and regular household duties and chores, grocery shopping, mindless tasks that you may be trying to accomplish, and I would add to that, if in the midst of high-level critical thinking, if in the midst of business operations, if in the midst of education and engineering, administration and counseling, if in the midst of software development and deliveries and sales and putting out structure fires and making welfare checks on those in their homes, ambulance runs, if in the midst of all those things that we do on a daily basis, if there is a song in your heart in the midst of your work, it makes all the difference in the world all the difference in the world and so rather than saying whistle while you work I'd like to tag this text this morning worship while you work see many of us spend 40 plus hours a week working in some capacity right and when I say work I'm using a definition of work that I've heard in several places but most recently from an author named Helen Mitchell as she was being interviewed for the podcast Think Biblically she said Work is anything that we do in which we express care for, serve, or add value to the lives of others, your family, yourself, or those outside of your home, right? Anything that you do in which you're expressing care, in which you're serving, or adding value both to your life or to the lives of others, that is work. And in terms of time, of the 168 hours that we have throughout a given week, I can do simple math. It's that complex stuff that gets me every time. Of those 168 hours, we may spend 40 to 50 of them working both inside and outside the home, sometimes upwards of 50 to 60 hours. And if you contrast that to the amount of time we may spend at church or in church-related activities, right, we may spend four to five hours a week if we attend Sunday service, if we are a member and attend a life group regularly, and if we're a part of a midweek Bible study. And so if you think about it this way, we spend 90% more time at work than we do gathering with the church, whatever your work is. Whatever your vocational duties are, you spend 90% more time engaged in that than you do in church activities. And if that's the case, here's what I want us to consider this morning. If that's the case, then we must consider the possibility that in the midst of our vocations, in the midst of our work, that they are one of the primary spaces that God intends for us to both express our faith and to be formed into the image of Christ. See, based on what the Apostle Paul says in the text that we just read this morning, I think that he would agree that in the midst of our labor, it's one of the primary spaces that God uses to form us into the image of Jesus and in which we express our faith. So this morning, just as we considered our faith being expressed in the relationship between husbands and wives, we took a look at that for two weeks. Last week we saw faith being expressed between parents and children, how our faith impacts those relational dynamics. This week we wanna take a look at how our faith is to be expressed in the workplace as we worship while we work. 
Now, before we get to the thrust of the message, I, I just wanna say a brief word about the context here. We can't just draw a simple straight line between what the Apostle Paul says in our text this morning into modern day life. And here's why. Paul is writing into an ancient context where they had servants or slaves in homes that were fulfilling responsibilities and obeying the will of their masters. All right, and so, most historians, most scholars will tell you that the type of slavery or servitude that's being described here is not the same type of slavery or servitude that we might be familiar with in colonial or early American history. But regardless, what you still have in place here is one human being owning another human being and that human being that's owned being responsible for carrying out the duties, obligations, commands, and will of the one that owned them as they serve their families. Now many will take a look at this and they'll say, see the Bible condones slavery. However, let me just push back on that for a second. For the Apostle Paul to write into a social construct that existed within the Roman Empire, to give instruction to those in society who found themselves in a particular situation within that broader social construct, and for him not to condemn the institution by railing against it, that is very different than the Apostle Paul saying, this is how things ought to be. It's very different. I find the words of Wayne Grudem extremely helpful here. Listen to what he says. He says, the Bible does not approve or command slavery any more than it approves or commands the persecution of Christians. So when the author of Hebrews commends his readers by saying, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, Grudem says, that does not mean that the Bible supports the plundering of Christians' property or that it commands theft. It only means that if Christians have their property taken through persecution, they should still rejoice because their heavenly treasure cannot be stolen. Similarly, when the Bible tells slaves to be submissive to their masters, it doesn't mean the Bible supports or commands slavery, but only that it tells people who are slaves how they should respond in the context in which they find themselves. In addition, when Paul says, slaves obey your masters in everything, we must understand that slaves or servants in that day owed obedience to their master only insofar as their obedience to their master did not conflict with their obedience to the Lord. I find the words of John Eadie helpful here as he summarizes the the, the point of this passage. Your masters on earth, he says, have no absolute right over you. The money they may have paid for you can only give them power over your bodies, your time, and your labor, but the Lord has bought you with his blood and has therefore an indefeasible claim on your homage and service. In other words, his claim on your worship and service, it cannot be annulled and it cannot be overturned. So while our context, right, the context of the ancient world in which there are household servants or slaves and the modern workplace are different contexts, I believe there are truths or principles here that carry forward in every generation or every context in which we might find ourselves. And so from this passage this morning, what I want us to do, the big idea that I want to drive at this morning is to help us learn how to connect the dots between our faith and our work. How do we connect the dots between our faith and our work? On Thursday night at the life group that our family attends, we were debating the merits of McDonald's. 
Uh, we were having a discussion about the food uh, that McDonald's serves and whether or not it is either one, good for you, which we all agree that's probably not the case, or two, that it tastes good on your palate, all right? To which some of us voted yes it does, others of us voted no it does not, right? It leaves you with all kinds of indigestion and feeling greasy and nasty. Now they're fries, if they're hot and crispy and ready to go, man, they're probably some of the best flies flies, fries on the face of the earth, okay? But we were debating the merits of McDonald's and it brought me back to my childhood because listen, my childhood was filled with Happy Meals, okay? (laughs) All right, that was one of the fast food joints that my parents took us consistently whenever they didn't feel like making dinner. And so I remember getting a Happy Meal every time I would go there. Uh, And I can remember on the boxes of the Happy Meals, there used to be these kids' activities, right, to entertain kids while they were, their parents were eating or enjoying their food. And so I remember one of the mainstays activities was the connect the dots, right? And so you, in sequence and in order, you move from one dot to the next, and as you connected all the dots, it created a bigger picture, right, than any of those little dots uh, created by themselves. And oftentimes it was like a picture of Grimace, right, the big purple what, I don't even know what he is, right? The big purple dude, right? Or a picture of the Hamburglar, okay? Or a picture of Ronald McDonald himself, and you would connect all the dots and see this bigger picture. And when you connect the dots in this passage, I think you see a bigger picture of what our, how our faith impacts our work, how our faith integrates into our vocations. And so I got five dots for you this morning. The first one is this. It's in verses 22 to 24, but particularly in verse 22, the first thought that makes up this bigger picture of how our faith and our work integrate is this, that work ought to be based on principle, not pragmatism. Principle, not pragmatism. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the word pragmatism, it just means what is expedient. It means what is practical in that particular context. But there are certain principles that should override any degree of what is pragmatic or practical. And here's, here's why I say that. In verse 22, Paul tells the Colossian Christians that servants should not work by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, he says, don't work hard only whenever other people are watching in order to curry favor with them. That's what it means to be a people pleaser, right? To curry favor with someone. So whenever someone's eyes are on you, you're working hard, you're being diligent, you're fulfilling your responsibilities, but whenever their back is turned, you're kind of a slouch, right? You're just sloughing off your responsibilities, right? That's pragmatism. Okay, it's practical, right? When somebody's looking at me, when my boss, my supervisor, the one that I, whose authority that I'm under is watching, then I work hard. But whenever they are not, I do not. That's eye service as a people pleaser. Now we all know people who are like this. And in fact, if some of us were to be honest in our lives, we have been guilty of this in our own journey, in our vocational lives at times. But Paul tells us, don't do your work only when the, if you're a teacher, only when the principal's in the room, right? He tells us, don't do your work if you work in public service as a police or a fireman, only whenever the chief is watching, right? Or your lieutenant or somebody who's above you in authority. 
He tells those who are under authority, don't do your work only when those who are in authority can see so that you would curry favor with them, earn their respect so that they would see that you are capable, that you are deserving of a promotion, that you ought to be raised higher on the org chart so that you have fewer people above you and more people beneath you and hopefully that comes with a raise as well. Right? If you only do your work when other people are watching with that type of motivation. Rather, he says, you work based on principle, not pragmatism. And then in the latter part of verse 22, we find the, it, Paul kind of takes that thinking, he turns it on its head. He says that, that, that we are to work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, you work based on principle. Sincerity of heart literally means this, it means singleness of heart singleness of heart. In other words, there's undivided attention and concentration given to the tasks before you. So you're not working on the sales report while you're also tracking your fantasy football stats. Okay, right? That you are single-minded in your attention and your devotion and your concentration to the task at hand. And you're not looking over your shoulder to see who's looking while you're working with that single-minded focus. In addition, when you work as a Christian, no matter the kind of work you're doing, listen, here's an important principle. You're not working to gain the respect of your boss. What Paul says is that you're working fearing the Lord. So you're not working to gain the respect of a human supervisor, but you're working to show respect to your heavenly master. It's a big difference between the two. Because if you're only working to gain the respect of your human supervisor and your human supervisor asks you to do things that are unethical, then you might yield because you want to curry favor in their eyes. But if your human supervisor asks you to do things that are unethical and you're working with this higher regard for reverence and respect of Jesus and Jesus alone, then when they ask you to do something that's unethical, you may not gain favor in their eyes whenever you say, no, I can't do that. Right, so you're not working to gain respect from them, you're working to show respect to Christ as your savior and your master. Now sometimes when you work to show reverence to Jesus, you may very well gain the respect of your supervisor, but those two things are not always interchangeable. So we work based on principle, not pragmatism. The second dot is found in verse 23 and it's this, that we work from an internal drive or motivation. In verse 23 we read, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That word heartily translated from the Greek literally means with all your soul. In other words, your internal composition, right? You are working with an internal drive and motivation. Right, not external motivations, but internally something is driving or propelling you forward in your vocational life. It's like an internal combustion engine, okay? You put gasoline in the tank, and whenever you turn the key, what happens? Well, it depends on if you've got carburetors or fuel injectors, but this premise is the same, right? It brings gasoline into that combustion chamber where it is sparked on fire, which then creates an explosion, pushes the piston down, which turns the drive shaft, which moves you forward. Everything's happening inside, internally, inside of that engine to move that vehicle forward. And what Paul is saying is there ought to be some degree of internal 
internal combustion going on in our vocational lives that we're driven forward internally. It's not just the carrot of a higher salary that's hung out in front of us that makes us work hard because we're not working for men, we're working for the Lord in all of our vocational duties. See, the source of that internal drive, Paul says, is that we're working as for the Lord. We're driven because he's ultimately the one that we're working for. Not our boss, not our principal, not our supervisor, not our department head, not our chief, not any other person in any position of authority over us. And this all goes back to verse 17 that we've seen over the last several weeks of chapter three. Whatever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right, so we are working from an internal drive as to the Lord, not to men. Third, the third dot is in chapter four, verse one, where I believe the principle that's laid out there is this, that we ought to work to create a fair and just work culture. A fair and just work culture. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we could say a lot about what this looks like in corporate America, right? We could say a lot. And in fact, as I've prepared this sermon this week, it's made me think maybe we need a four-week thematic series on the integration of faith and work at some point that we may come back to. But this, so I can't say everything about it this morning, but I can say one thing. See, the word to masters here, the, one, the word to those who are in authority is for them to treat their servants with justice and fairness. That word justly literally means what is right. And it often occurs in the Bible when it refers to a conduct that meets standards set by God himself. So in other words, you're to treat those under your authority with the same level of care, concern, compassion, love, correction, direction as the Lord treats his servants. That your example should come from the way that God engages and interfaces with you as you interface with those under your authority. That word fairly literally means equality. In other words, there's a fairness dispensed with and between each servant. In other words, we shouldn't play favorites within the office and what that lo- or within the school or wherever it is that we have jurisdiction. And what that means is this, is that we should not right, commend commend one employee or one person under our authority or reprimand one person under our, under our authority, right? Either way, right, if you take a look at reprimanding someone under our authority, we shouldn't reprimand one person for one type of behavior in our jurisdiction while not reprimanding somebody else for the same type of behavior because this person, person's personality is more pleasant and this person's personality is a l- not quite as pleasant, right? But there should be fair, there should be equality in the way that we treat others across the board. It also means that we shouldn't commend the work of one individual, right, while not commending the work of another individual because you like one person more than you like the other person when both of their works are worthy of commendation. There ought to be fairness and equality and justice that we ought to create a fair and just work culture where there is no partiality. The fourth dot is found in verse 25, and it is this. It's work is one accountable to God. Work is one 
as one accountable to God. For the, Paul says in verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Now look, there's some debate as to whether or not this verse is looking backward to the servants or forward to the masters, okay? And I would suggest that it's a bridge between the two, looking back and forward, not either or. And here's why. I think it's a warning to the servants who would work as people pleasers and to those masters who would be cruel and unjust in their treatment of those under their authority. Essentially what Paul says is that God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of social standing. He's no respecter of race, class, or 401Ks. He's no respecter of investment accounts or positions. So there's no partiality, and God will judge both the motivations and the actions of both servants and masters. And so work is one who's accountable to God, who has to give an answer to him as your heavenly master. Now the fifth and final dot We'll spend a little more time on this one because I think it creates, starts, it helps us begin to create the bigger picture. It brings it more into view. And the fifth dot is found in verse 24. And I believe it's this, it's that we are to work for the ultimate reward. Work for the ultimate reward. So often within our modern context, we're working for a reward, right? It's called our paycheck, okay? Uh, we're working to be compensated by someone. Some of us who perhaps don't work in the marketplace, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or you're homeschooling your children, you're working for some deferred reward one day out there in the future that you're hoping is going to come to fruition, right? But nevertheless, you're working for a reward, something that you will see here on the earth. But I want you to listen to Paul's words in verse 24. He says, you are to work as unto the Lord, not as unto men. He says, knowing Verse 24, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now in Paul's day, this would have been mind-blowing, okay? Because the servants in the home, they were not privy to any inheritance to come from the master of the home, the father, the husband, right? The one who ruled the household. They were not privy to be participants in any type of inheritance passed down from them, to put it in our day and time, it would like, they were not written into the will, okay? Okay, so they weren't expecting any kind of inheritance from their masters. But here Paul says that they will receive the inheritance as a reward from their heavenly master. In other words, as those in Christ, those Christian servants who are working to fulfill the will of their master on earth as they work unto the Lord, with single-minded attention, not for performance, so that they would be recognized and promoted, driven by an internal motivation to show respect and reverence for Christ as their heavenly master, that they have an inheritance that they will receive. And Peter describes that inheritance in 1 Peter chapter one, where he says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And I think a part of that inheritance they are waiting on is to step in the presence of Jesus and hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into your rest. That's the ultimate reward. 
is to hear on the lips of Christ himself, well done. Now, this ultimate reward, listen, is it for pastors and missionaries and ministry leaders? Yes. Is it for doctors and lawyers and business owners? Yes. Is it for police, fire, and EMS personnel? Yes. Is it for educators, engineers, and counselors? I think you get the picture. Yes. Is it for manual labor, sales reps, and customer support specialists, for accountants, nurses, musicians, artists, photographers, videographers, for digital nomads, whatever those people are these days, for stay-at-home moms and independent contractors, for mechanics, yes, 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 and yes. Listen, it is not that Jesus is going to return one day and say to those who gave 40 to 50 hours a week in their vocational duties, and maybe they gave two hours a month to teaching a kid's Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, he's not gonna say to them, well done on those two hours a month you gave to those little ones teaching them my word. But the rest of that stuff, that's all right. That's not what he's gonna say. No, when he returns, he will say, well done to the bus driver who faithfully drove their route every day with a smile on their face and cared for those who sat in their seats. He will say, well done to those who dug ditches to ensure that water was channeled to the appropriate places and it didn't erode the foundations of important structures. He will say well done to the contractor who put a roof over people's heads at an honest and fair price. He will say well done to the teacher who invested not only their knowledge base, but also their love and compassion and concern for every child who sat in every seat of every classroom that they've ever taught in. He will say well done to the business owner who took a risk and employed people that most would pass over and train them with the skills they would need in order to be successful in an industry in which they could provide for their families. He will say well done to the artists and the musicians who created art that was pleasing to the eye and moved the soul. He will say well done to public servants who upheld the order of society and responded in the face of crisis and emergency to take care of citizens in their districts. He will say well done to the engineer who designed and tested all sorts of mechanical and structural elements to ensure their usefulness and safety before they were put into service, that they would be reliable. He will say well done to the mechanic who does honest work at an honest price so people can repair their vehicles, take their kids to school, and drive to work to provide for their families. He will say well done to the homeschooling or stay-at-home mom who's pouring her heart out day in and day out, changing diapers, teaching lessons, sometimes with very little earthly reward in the moment. He will say well done to all of those and more. 
See, it's not just that the service that you give to the church is what matters in the eyes of God. Does that matter? Yes. But it is fulfilling your vocational duties in ways that add value to the lives of others. Care for and serve the people who are around you. God will, does, <laughs> by no means is going to dismiss what you do 40 to 50 hours a week. But he wants to form you through it. And he wants to bless the world on account of it. And it's because of this reward that's waiting that Paul says in verse 24, at the end he says, serve the Lord Christ. Most of our translations say you are serving the Lord Christ, but the word serve in the Greek is an imperative. You know what that is? That's a command. And most commentators go against the translators and say it should be understood as a command, not a fact. And so what he's saying is this, because you're waiting for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant, in all of these vocational duties that you did, serve Jesus. Serve him with a single-mindedness. Serve him from an internal motivation. Be accountable to him. Work as one who's gonna have to answer to him. Be fair and just in all of your dealings with people. Serve the Lord. Those are the principles in this passage that I think help us connect the dots and give us this bigger picture. Now these dots don't change the way an engineer designs a bridge. Okay, they're still going to design the bridge in the same way, but it changes the way they think about designing that bridge. These dots don't change what a math teacher teaches in an algebra classroom, but it changes the way they think about what they're teaching in that algebra one course. These dots don't change what a stay-at-home mom does as she changes diapers and prepares meals, but it changes the way she thinks about the changing of that diaper, especially the ones that are especially smelly. And all the meals she's preparing, the way she thinks about it, doesn't change the way a contractor builds a home, but it changes the way a contractor thinks about building a home. Is anybody with me? Do you see this? That you worship as you work. Is these things you're offering up to the Lord day after day for seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day, four, five days a week. That we worship while we work. Work based on principle, not pragmatism. From an internal drive, accountable to God in fair and just ways for an ultimate reward. So perhaps, church, as we go out this week, instead of singing whistle while you work, maybe we would go out singing a song of worship in our hearts that would make all the difference in the world as we enter into the tasks that wait for us tomorrow morning. Let's pray together.
Father, often it's easy to get lost in the everyday realities of responsibilities and to miss the bigger picture. That everything that we do with our time and our energy is an act of worship, including what we do in our vocational lives. And whether we are employed outside the home or we're employed inside the home, whether we're working in a high-rise or whether we're working in a living room or anywhere in between, everything that we put our hands to is to be an act of worship. That if our lives are hidden with Christ in you, that if indeed we've been brought from death to life and we understand all of our lives, everything that we do in word or deed done in the name of the Lord Jesus, then our work matters. Not just to investors. Our work matters, not just to employers. Our work matters, not just to supervisors and department heads. Our work matters to you. And the way that we do it The way that we do it matters. So Father, help us to take these dots and see the bigger picture of how we are to worship while we work. And that we would do so to your glory and your honor, not the bottom line of our company. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand this morning and sing with us as we respond to what God has said in his word through song. If you've got questions this morning about the message or about this Christ to whom all our worship, including our vocational lives, is to be given to, I'd love to connect with you. I'll be at the kiosk in the back of the room on your way out. I'd love to pray with you, answer any questions that you might have. But I invite you to lift your voices this morning in response to God's word. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.